0: We're looking tonight at the Belgian Confession, Article 14, which is found on page 59 in our Three Forms of Unity, the creation and fall of man and his incapacity to perform what is truly good. We believe that God created man out of the dust of the earth and made and formed him after his own image and likeness good, righteous, and holy, capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. But being in honor, he understood it not, neither knew his excellency, but willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse, giving ear to the words of the devil. For the commandment of life which he had received he transgressed, and by sin separated himself from God who was his true life, having corrupted his whole nature, whereby he made himself liable to corporal and spiritual death. And being thus become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways, he has lost all his excellent gifts which he had received from God and retained only small remains thereof, which, however, are sufficient to leave man without excuse. For all the light which is in us is changed into darkness, as the scriptures teach us, saying, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, where the apostle John calls men darkness. Therefore we reject all that is taught repugnant to this concerning the free will of man, since man is but a slave to sin and can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. John 3, verse 27, For who may presume to boast that he of himself can do any good Since Christ says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, verse 44. Who will glory in his own will who understands that the carnal mind is enmity against God? Romans 8, verse 7. Who can speak of his knowledge since the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. In short, who dares suggest any thought since he knows that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but that our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. And therefore what the apostle says ought justly to be held sure and firm that God works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. For there is no understanding nor will conformable to the divine understanding and will But what Christ has wrought in man, which he teaches us when he says, Without me you can do nothing. John 15 verse 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Belgic Confession Article 14 deals with three subjects. The first of those subjects is the creation of man. The second uh, is the fall of man into sin. And the third is the subject of the freedom of the will, or the better, perhaps, the bondage of the will to sin. So we're going to divide our study tonight according to those three topics of this article. We begin then with the creation of man. And the Confession says three things about the creation of man. First of all, it says that God created man from the dust of the earth. And of course, what the Scriptures are teaching us here, that's a quotation from Genesis chapter 2. What the Scriptures are teaching us here is that we are of the earth, earthy, that we belong to this earthly creation along with the animals and the birds and the fish and the trees and the plants and everything else that is found in this earthly creation. We belong here in this creation. That's where God created us to live. That's where we find according to our original creation, our proper place. God repeated this idea to Adam when he cursed Adam after the fall and said, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And the Apostle Paul talks about it at some length in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 46 and following. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 46 and following. Let's um, read those verses. Here Paul is talking in this chapter about the difference between the natural body or the original body and the spiritual body. And he says of these two bodies, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, Made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. There's a a constant emphasis there on the fact that we are, according to our original creation, as we are in Adam, creatures of the dust. And that points us, in part, of course, to the fact that we are very insignificant before God. We are dust. And it behooves us, when we stand in the presence of God, to remember that we are dust, It takes a great condescension on the part of God, not only to deal with sinners, but even to deal with those who are of the dust. He condescends to us in our dustiness. The second thing that the Confession says about the creation of man is that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that, too, is a quotation from Genesis chapter 2. Here, the scriptures point us to the special character of man in God's earthly creation. God did not breathe into the nostrils of any uh, of the other earthly creatures the breath of life. Though the scriptures speak of those living creatures... In uh, Genesis 1 and 2, as living souls, nevertheless, man is a soul who is different from those animals. And he is different because God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That breath of life which God breathes into his nostrils, breathed into his nostrils, points us to the spiritual aspect of man's being. In a sense, that spiritual aspect of man's being doesn't even belong to the earth. It is that by which we can have fellowship and friendship with God. He created us as spiritual beings so that he could make of us his companions and his friends. And he did that with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he walked with them in the cool of the day. So this sets man apart, then, from the rest of the animals, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The third thing that the Confession says about the creation of man is that God made man in his own image. And what that means, as the Confession itself says, and we should not fail to notice how the Confession defines this image of God here, God made and formed him after his own image and likeness, and then what that means, good, righteous, and holy, capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. That's what the confession uh, tells us belongs to the image of God. And you find the same thing taught in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day uh, 3, uh, question and answer six: Did God create man thus wicked and perverse? No, but God created man good and after His own image, that is, in righteousness and true holiness, that he might rightly know God, his Creator, heartily love with him, love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. So our confessions define the image of God as being morally like God. We are good, righteous, and holy. We have true knowledge of God. And of course the passages in Scripture that point us in this direction are Ephesians 4 verse 24. Put on the new man which was created according to God, that according to God points us to the image, in true righteousness and holiness. And Colossians three verse 10 Colossians 3, verse 10, where the Apostle actually uses the word image. He says this, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Knowledge there is described as belonging to the image, and that is, of course, the knowledge of God himself, the true knowledge of God. So those are the things that according to scripture belong to the image. Now, it's used uh, it's often been said that there are other things that belong to the image. For example, that man is a rational and moral creature. I prefer to say about that that it is not that we are rational and moral that we are in the image of God, but rather that our rationality and morality enable us to be in the image of God. Only a rational moral creature can be like God in righteousness and holiness and knowledge. Uh, Animals cannot be in the image of God because they are not rational and moral creatures. And some have said that dominion belongs to the image of God. According to Genesis 1, God gave man dominion over his creation. But I prefer to say of that, that that is a result of the image of God, not a part of the image of God itself. As God made us righteous and holy and gave to us knowledge of himself, he was enabling us to represent him in his creation, to be king on his behalf. And also, as our catechism points out to us, to have friendship with himself, to walk in fellowship with him and to live with him in blessedness. So those are the three things, that, and they are, I think we may say, three essential things that the Confession says about the creation of man. God created us from the dust of the ground. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. He made us in his image. The rest of that first paragraph, then, in the Confession, talks about the fall of man into sin, the fall of Adam into sin. I think we may divide that part of the article into two uh, main parts. You'll notice in the first place that it consumes most of that first paragraph. The uh, talk about the creation of man takes only three lines in the um, paragraph. The rest of it is all about the fall of man, about a dozen lines about the fall of man. There are two things in that material there. The first is the folly of man's fall. And we'll look at the elements that make up that folly of man in his fall. And the second is the consequences of the fall. So we'll look at those two aspects of the fall of man. First of all, the folly of man's fall into sin. The confession says, being in honor, he understood it not, neither knew his excellency. That's folly that the confession is describing there. God created Adam in honor. He gave him uh, those gifts of righteousness and holiness and knowledge, which he had not given to any other earthly creature. He gave to him dominion over his earthly creation. He gave him that honorable work to do in the garden of cultivating the garden and extending the dominion of uh, the creation from the garden to all the rest of God's world. And it, being in that honor, the confession says, he did not understand. He was a fool. He suppressed his knowledge in a perfect way condition in a perfect state he suppressed his knowledge of the honor that god had bestowed on him and sought a greater honor he sought to be like god himself the confession uses language there when he says he was in honor he did not and did not understand that comes from psalm 49 verse 20 it's interesting that the Confession has chosen to use this language because when you look at Psalm 49, you see that Psalm 49 is not about the fall of Adam, but rather about the folly of trusting in riches. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. And then in verse 12, nevertheless man, though in honor does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. His honor there is his wealth, but he does not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. But then in verse 20, a man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. The confession means to say Adam was like these rich men, these men who trusted in their wealth. He became like the beasts that perish and rejecting the understanding of the high honor in which God had created him and choosing to seek an honor which God had not given him. So that was part of his folly. But a second part of his folly was that he willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse. He willfully subjected himself to sin. He was able to do the good. God created him good and after his own image. His will was good. And God gave him a commandment in the garden. And God said to him, don't eat of that tree. And Adam, by his own free will, chose to eat of the tree which God had commanded him not to eat of. That was a foolish choice. It was a choice of folly. He did not listen to the commandment of God, but he listened to the words of the serpent, who was only, after all, a creature. So that was the second part of his folly. He willfully subjected himself to sin, death, and the curse. The third part of his folly was that he gave ear to the words of the devil. He had the word of God on the one hand, he had the word of the devil on the other hand. He knew the difference between the word of God and the word of the devil. And he listened to the word of the devil, not the word of God. Understanding fully who God was, what God had done for him. And that God had created him. That was folly. And finally, that, the folly of his commandment is in this. For the commandment of life which he had received, he transgressed. God gave him a commandment of life. The commandment was don't eat of that tree. To obey that commandment was life for Adam. Do this and thou shalt live. That's the constant theme of the law of God. Do it and you will live. We can't, of course, anymore do it and therefore can't live by it. But the principle nevertheless remains true. Do it and live. It's a commandment of life. God's commandments are always commandments of life. God said to Adam, keep doing my commandment and you will live. Transgress my commandment and you will die. Adam transgressed the commandment of life and therefore died. That was folly again on Adam's part. You see his folly working through all of this. You see the folly of a sinful choice on Adam's part. So that's the the first emphasis of the confession in this article about Adam's uh, fall, that it was foolishness that made him fall. But the second thing that we see here is the consequences of that fall into sin. And these consequences are horrible. First of all, of course, the consequences of the fall of Adam are in this subjecting himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse Adam did not simply sin and then return to the condition or remain in the condition in which God had created him. By his sin, he subjected himself to sin. Sin became his master, and he its slave. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6, isn't it? When he says that uh, when we obey sin, we become the slaves of sin. And when we obey righteousness, we become the slaves of righteousness. This is what happened to Adam. He chose one sin. He committed one sin. And his one sin made him a slave of sin. Subjected him completely to sin. And that was because God had cursed his sin. God had said, the day you eat of it, you will die. That was God's curse on his sin. And Adam died. He subjected himself, therefore, not only to sin and to slavery to sin, but he subjected himself to the curse of God and to death. That was the first consequence. And in a sense, we might say that that's the whole of the consequence of Adam's sin. But the confession goes on to talk uh, at greater length about what this uh, death and curse meant for Adam and there were there are several things there that we see first of all, it says he separated himself from God he separated himself from God that is, God drove him out of the garden God put an angel at the, or I think it was two angels actually, at the entrance to the garden. And these angels prevented Adam from re-entering the garden and from partaking of the tree of life, a sign of his fellowship with God, of his knowing God and living with God. He separated himself from God. He separated himself not from God in the sense that God was no longer present anywhere near Adam, that he was physically detached from God in some way. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. No one can escape his presence. He separated himself from God in the sense that he separated himself altogether from the blessing and favor of God. That God was no longer favorably disposed towards him, that God's face would no longer shine on him that God would no longer have fellowship with him, but instead would pour out on him his anger. He separated himself from God, who was his true life, the confession says. So that's the second consequence. The third consequence is the corruption of his whole nature, He corrupted his whole nature. That is, again, that he did not just sin once and then remain in the condition in which God had created him. But he sinned once, and that one sin then brought on him thorough moral corruption of his nature. It did not just lead him then into a habit of sin, which he might perhaps by struggle have put off at some point, but it led him to a <laughs> thoroughgoing and complete corruption of his nature, so that his mind became darkened, his will became perverse, and out of this darkened mind and perverse will began to flow then a fountain of evil water, of evil works. He was a sinner. Not just a man who had sinned or a man who continued to sin, but a sinner according to his nature, corrupted and perverse in his very nature, unable then to produce any good, as we're going to see in a little while. He, uh, therefore, corrupted his nature, and then, finally, he made himself liable to uh, corporal and spiritual death. Actually, before we go there, to that final idea, let's note that this corruption of nature includes being wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. That's one thing the Confession says. Wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. All of his behavior, all of his thoughts, all of his desires, all of his choices, There was nothing left anymore of the original goodness in which God created him. The image was destroyed completely. He lost, as the confession says, all his excellent gifts. He lost the image of God. He lost the position of honor in which God had created him in the garden. He lost friendship with God. He lost ultimately. Dominion over the creation itself. All the blessings and all the goodness that God had given to him in his original creation was gone. Nothing of it remained. Except, as the confession says, that he retained only small remains thereof. He retained small remains. But these small remains, the confession is quick to point out, are sufficient only for one thing, to leave him without excuse before God. They are not sufficient to enable him to do any good, not sufficient for him to love God or to seek God, not sufficient for him to uh, exercise faith in response to God's invitation not sufficient for him to accept Christ or to invite Christ into his heart. Nothing of that is possible to man in his fallen condition. What remains of him, of that original light, was only sufficient to leave him without excuse before God. He could not say, I never knew you. Because God continued to impress on his darkened mind knowledge of himself. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1. God continued to impress on his darkened mind the knowledge of himself that God is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. To impress on him the knowledge of his commandments, as Romans 2 says as well. God made sure that man could not say, I was completely ignorant of you. I was completely ignorant of your law. But what does man do with it? With this remnant of light that remains? The confession also talks about that. All the light which is in us is changed into darkness as the scriptures teach us saying the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it where the Apostle John calls men darkness. The Canons of Dort also talk about these remnants of natural light in Canons 3 and 4, Article 4, which you can find on page 94. I want to read that article a moment. There remain, however, in man since the fall the glimmerings of natural understanding, whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. But so far is this understanding of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion that he is incapable, and notice that, he is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil much less than, of course, in things spiritual. Nay, further, this understanding, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and hinders in unrighteousness, by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. And then, finally, we have the liability to corporal and spiritual death. Corporal death is the death of the body, Adam began to die in his body as soon as he had eaten of the tree. And spiritual death is the death of the soul. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And Adam began immediately after uh, disobeying God's commandment to show the death of his soul. He was ashamed of his nakedness tried to cover it by inadequate means, hid himself from God. When God nevertheless confronted him with his sin, Adam immediately shifted the blame to Eve, and ultimately even to God himself. He threw his wife Eve under the bus, hoping to save himself. And he blamed God, the woman you gave me. He says to God, he became wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. And these two, corporal and spiritual death, of course, reach their pinnacle in the eternal torment of body and soul in hell. Death is not annihilation. And death is not unconsciousness for the unbelieving and the wicked. Death is eternal, ongoing existence and consciousness under the terrible wrath of God. It is an eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. The picture, then, that the confession paints of the consequences of man's fall is grim, it's a horrible picture, but it's where we are by nature. It's the scriptural teaching of what man is apart from God, wholly given over to sin, cut off from the favor of God, corrupt in all his nature, having none of the excellent gifts which God had given him in the beginning subject to death, the curse, and a slave of sin, and threatened with eternal torment of body and soul in hell. The Confession, then, in its third uh, discussion, third subject in this article, talks about the matter of free will, Now, this whole subject of free will has been a dispute in the church from very early years of the church's history. There were the Pelagians, of course, who said that man had not been corrupted by his original sin. There were the semi-Pelagians who said that man had not been corrupted completely by his original sin and therefore was not dead. And then later on, of course, there were the Arminians who said that man has a free will and is able to believe or can, with the assistance of prevenient grace, believe (coughs) again and then obtain by that free will and the help of some grace, uh, saving grace. But, of course, the confession is not talking about Arminianism. It's addressing rather free will as it was taught by the Church of Rome in its semi-Pelagian stand. And the best example of this from the time of the Reformation is, of course, the um, Reformation, the Roman Catholic, rather, scholar, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, who wrote a book about the freedom of the will. And it was against this book that Martin Luther wrote the Christian classic the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will, and that's what the Confession is talking about here, the bondage of the will. But what does it mean when it talks about the fact that our will is not free? Well, it doesn't mean, obviously, that our wills are not free to choose. Our wills still have the power of choice. That's very obvious to all of us. We exercise the power of choice every day. We exercise the power of choice when we get up out of bed. We exercise the power of choice when we eat a meal. We exercise the power of choice whenever we perform any action in our daily lives. That's the power of choice. It's not talking about having that power of choice um, taken away. And so what the confession means here by a free will is a will that's able to choose good. Or a will that's able to exercise faith, or as the Armenians of today put it, a will that's able to accept Christ. A will then that still has the power of doing good, of willing good in it. And what the confession is saying is that power of willing good, of choosing good is gone. The will is free to act, yes, but it's free to act only according to its nature, and its nature is wholly corrupt. It's inclined against God. It hates God. It loves wickedness. It rebels against God. It's in a state of, a constant state of rebellion against God. It doesn't want to do good, and will not do good, and cannot do good. Man is, as the confession says, a slave to sin. And that's literally true. He is absolutely enslaved by sin and can therefore receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He cannot receive the commandments of God. He cannot receive the knowledge of God. He cannot receive the ability to love God, or any such thing. He cannot receive anything that is good. It's all gone. He is entirely incapable of good. The Confession then cites a number of Scripture passages in this regard. The first is John 6, verse 44. John 6, verse 44, a very important verse for understanding not only our fall into sin, but also the power of God's salvation. Jesus says there, no no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. He doesn't even say, no one wills to come to me, unless the Father draws me, draws him. He said, no one can. It is impossible for man to come to God without God's drawing. He cannot, therefore, come. uh, Romans 8, verses 7 Verse 7 is the next, and we're going to take with that Romans 8, verse 8. That's an important addition, I think, to the proof text that the confession cites here. Paul says there, the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind is not neutral towards God. It's not in a mixed and confused condition so that sometimes it loves God and sometimes it, it hates God. No, the carnal mind is, not just is filled with, but is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Again, you have that impossibility. It cannot be subject to the law of God. And Paul's conclusion then in verse 8 is, so then those who are in the flesh, Cannot again the impossibility, cannot please God. There is the uh, cannot obey then. The cannot be subject. You have a cannot come in John 6 verse 44. Here you have a cannot obey. And then 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 is the next one. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, note the impossibility. It doesn't say simply that he does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's true. But he cannot know them Because they are spiritually discerned. So you have a cannot come, a cannot obey, and a cannot know. That's our condition, according to the scriptures. And 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5 is the uh, final one. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. We cannot think anything as being from ourselves. There are many, many other passages we could cite, but let's just refer for a final passage to Romans chapter three, verses ten to eight. We know these verses well. Paul here, Romans three, verse. Verses 10 to 18 strings together a whole series of quotations from the Old Testament about the depravity of man. And he paints a very grim picture of the depravity of man in those verses. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Again, you have three things there no righteous, no one righteous, no one who understands no one who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So, none righteous, none who understands, none who sees God, none who seeks good, who does good. And then the description of the wickedness that man produces in this fallen condition. Their throat is an open tube. with their tongues they have practiced deceit, The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's us, as we are by nature. talk about a free will in the face of that kind of scriptural evidence, people of God, seems a bit of a stretch, to say the least. But the confession does not leave the matter there, though the confession will get to the doctrine of salvation in Article 16, It also points us, begins to point us in a positive direction in the final sentences of the article. Therefore, what the Apostle says ought justly to be held sure and firm that God works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. We do his good pleasure. How? God works in us. We will His good pleasure. How? God works in us to will. God works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. That's the saving work of God. To convert that corrupt and perverse will to a will that is willing and able to do his good pleasure. And then again, there is no understanding nor will conformable to the divine, will, divine understanding and will, but what Christ has wrought in man. No understanding conformable to the divine understanding, no will conformable to the divine will, except what Christ works in us. As he himself said in John 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. So we seek our refuge, we seek our justification, our forgiveness, and our sanctification, our holiness in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give thanks to the God of our salvation for giving us his son to redeem us from so bitter a curse. May God bless us with his word.